Good morning to you. It is it's great to see you all here this morning. If I haven't had a chance to introduce myself to you, if you're visiting with us, my name is Jason, and I do have the honor and the humble privilege of pastoring here and leading um, with Billy and, and four other elders here at the church. And, uh, and so i um, just glad that you trust us with your time. Uh, we're going to start in Ephesians 4 this morning. Um, if you've got a Bible or a gadget, a phone, a tablet, a way to get to God's Word, um, Ephesians 4 is where we're going to start. If you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, um, we do have black hardback Bibles around you um, under the chairs. Those are there for you. Feel free to grab one and turn there. Uh, Ephesians is right after Galatians, right before Philippians. Um, as you turn there, I'm going to talk about a couple things. One, I want to talk about the sermon series that we're starting today and where it fits into the overall vision of where we're going as a church. And so uh, in order to do that, I kind of got to back up about three years. Um, and so um, three years ago, um, we did a, a sermon series through the whole year uh, where we spent all of our time in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of you remember that. We went through the narrative life of Christ, went into the Red Letter series, looked at the specific direct teachings from Jesus, spent the whole year there. The year after that, two years ago, we spent our whole year in the Old Testament, looking at how the Old Testament, every verse of every book in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and this beautiful connection between the Old and the New Testament. And then the next year, last year, we came back and we spent the whole year in the Letters to the Church series where we walked through these beautiful letters in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church, allowing ourselves, under, to place, to, allowing ourselves to be placed under the microscope of God's Word as a church, saying, what do you want to say to us? And so that was last year. Well, um, this year, uh, we're going we're to try to wrap up our journey through the Bible in four years, and then we'll, then we'll start over again. Uh, but so we noticed uh, a couple of things. There were two really significant books in the New Testament that we didn't cover through all that. Uh, one is the book of Hebrews, and the other one is the book of Revelation. So let me just kind of tell you what we're going to do this year. We spent the first three months of the year in a, in a uh, sermon series entitled Unity of Faith, where we walked through our statement of faith, the non-negotiable essential elements of the Christian faith, what it truly means to be Christian, to find that place where we are united rather than amplifying the places where we're divided. And so we just have almost finished that series. As a matter of fact, the last Wednesday of this month, we're going to have a special night called Christ and Culture. We're going to come back and talk about the last, um, the last uh, conversation in that series is a conversation on heaven and hell and eternal destiny. We'll do that on the fifth Wednesday of this month if you want to come for that to finish up that series. Today we're starting a series entitled um, A Church United. Okay, and so we're going to walk today and the next three Sundays through our vision as a church from God's word, allowing us to see uh, who we are as a church and where God is taking us. And so if you're a visitor, this is a great time to come. Over the next few Sundays, you'll hear a lot about um, who we are as a church and, and where we're going. Um, so this morning, we're going we're gonna to start by looking at um, our unity and why unity matters. And if you've been with us since the first of the year, that word unity has come up a lot. First sermon series was unity of faith. Now we're doing a series entitled Church United. Um, just a little heart behind that while, while we're doing that. Um, there, there's, as Billy mentioned in his prayer, there are so many amazing things that God is doing right now in and through our church. Beyond what we could have ever expected or imagined. Beyond even the things that we've prayed for, God is working in some tremendous ways. Folks are showing up from all over the place, finding us on the internet, coming out of neighborhoods. And, and God is just working and saving and healing and restoring and bringing light to darkness in so many ways um, beyond what we would even expect. And so we're so grateful for that. It's like a door has opened up of God's favor. And so in order to steward that well, 
in order to, uh, to steward well and to shepherd well all the lives who are coming, it's important that we, we stand on a foundation of unity. From the elders uh, to every volunteer, that we truly stand in unity with one another. That's the only way, as Jeff talked about, that we can be the light in the darkness that this community so desperately needs. And we stand united. Now, that being said, we're going to start this morning by asking the question, why does unity matter? Okay? Why does unity even matter? And my hope is that by the time we get done today, um, not only will you see and I see that unity does matter, but even deeper than that, that unity is essential. It's essential for the peace that I need in my life. It's essential for the spiritual growth that I need in my life. It's essential for the spiritual growth in your life. It's essential for this mission that God has called us to, not just to this community, but to the ends of the earth, to Flint and to the Philippines and all the places that God is sending us out to, that unity is more than just something that matters. It's essential to everything that we do. So we're going to go to Ephesians 4, uh, the first six verses of Ephesians 4, a beautiful overview of unity, where our unity comes from, why it matters. And so we're going to walk through this together verse by verse, starting in verse 1. Ephesians 4.1. All right. Paul begins by saying, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, already Paul has said so much in just those few words about our unity. And if we're not careful, we'll completely miss it. So he begins by saying, I, therefore, right, which means... Everything I've said so far to you matters and applies to what I'm about to say. I, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you. Now, if you read Paul's writings, you'll come across um, when he's going to say something important, he oftentimes will remind his, the people hearing his or reading his letters that he is either a prisoner of the Lord or a bondservant of Jesus, reminding that he's writing from that perspective. And so he does that here. I, therefore, Paul, uh, as a prisoner of the Lord, I want to urge you to do something. So more than just a suggestion, right, more than just inspiration, he's saying, like, I want to urge you to listen to what I'm about to say. It's incredibly important. I urge you. Now, this was originally written in a, in a Greek language, right, and so we don't always see everything that's there. Matter of fact, the word you can be a little misleading. Um, I'll oftentimes read the word you in the New Testament thinking that it's just about me, but this is actually what we say, how we, how we say in Texas, y'all. It's plural. It's you all. And so his urging is not just to me as a pastor or to the high-profile volunteers in a church or to the elders, the super spiritual, the song leaders. He's actually talking to the whole church. This was a letter written to the church. He's saying, I'm urging all of you, all of you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, in this letter, when Paul uses this term walk, he's referring to metaphorically this idea of everything that encompasses living. So when he says walk, he literally means living. To live in a manner worthy of the calling. So we're going to back up two chapters to Ephesians 2 where Paul first uses this idea of walk, right, to understand what he's meaning here when he says, therefore, walk. So we can get a better idea of what's going on in Paul's mind and his heart. So in Ephesians 2, just two chapters before this, uh, starting in verse 1, Paul says something very profound and very 
uh, true and indicative of who we used to be before we became Christians. He says this, And you, you all, y'all, and you all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay, he's meaning the same thing here, in which you once lived. Now, what an interesting thing to say. Dead, yet you were walking. Right? What, a, what an ironic thing to say. What do you mean by that, Paul? Literally what he's saying is, I'm talking about before you knew Jesus. You were alive. I mean, you had a pulse and you, had a, you ate and you looked alive, but nothing alive was coming out of you. No, no good fruit. No life was coming out. You were as good as a dead man walking. You all, remember that. Remember that before the grace of Jesus washed over your life, you were as good as a dead man walking. You had a pulse, you looked alive, but there was no good fruit coming out of your life. You were like a dead tree there, just withering. He says, remember that. In which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Remember? That's how you used to live. But then in verse 10, he talks about a new way to walk. And so what happens between verse 2 and verse 10 is this, is Paul says this, remember that when you were dead, walking, that God made you alive? That literally by, by grace through faith, so that nobody gets to brag or boast, remember how Jesus came to you and he saved you even while you were a dead man walking? And then in verse 10, now that that's happened in our lives, now that we've tasted salvation, the goodness and the kindness of the Lord, look at verse 10 of chapter 2. He says, for we are his Worksmanship. Now, this is the um, it's the it's an imagery of being uh, in a, in a blacksmith shop, being a, a piece of metal that's being worked on, worked with, being heated up in the fire, being placed on the anvil and hammered, being cooled in the water, being pressed against the grinder, being heated back up in the fire. And he's saying this about you all. All of us are like that. We're all like like pieces of of art. We're all like tools in the master's hands. Isn't this cool? Every one of us right now, we all are his worksmanship. That's what he's doing in your life right now, whether you know it or not. God is working below the surface in your life in ways that you have no idea. He's shaping you. He's honing you. At times, he's grinding some things off. Other times he's cooling you off in the water and allowing you to rest. And Paul says this, now that we're his worksmanship, this is the rest of verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see how he uses that word walk to encompass all of life? Remember how you used to live like a dead man walking? But now that you've been made alive, right, you're living as as his worksmanship. You're living, walking into good works. Every day when I wake up by faith, I I, I shower, I get dressed, I go about my daily routine in faith, believing that God has prepared good works in advance that I would walk into them. But he doesn't stop here with this idea. So we're gonna gonna move to verse 13 in chapter two. So keep that in mind. When he talks about walking, walking this new life, he's talking about our salvation. Jesus died to save us. But look at what he says in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, right? Those who 
were used to be dead in, in sin, you were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we have to ask the question, near to what? Near to who? What do you mean by nearness here, that we've been brought near? Well, the first thing we think of is our relationship with God, right? We've been brought near. We used to be far off, following the course of this world, doing our own thing like dead men walk, and we were a long ways from God. But now we've been brought near. We've been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. And the nearness he's talking about is not just my nearness with God, but he's also talking about a different nearness. Look at what he says. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself, being Jesus, is our peace. Now he's talking about our nearness, isn't he? He's our peace. So as I draw near to God, I've also been drawn near to you. He is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I love how Paul draws on the imagery of marriage here all the way back from Genesis 2. Adam and Eve, Eve was brought to Adam and the two became one, one flesh. Paul draws on this in Ephesians 5, talking about the role of husbands and wives, that ultimately that the man and the wife have left their parents' homes, have come together, not just in a mutual agreement or a contract, but the two have literally become one, right, in marriage. But now he's talking about our relationship, that the two have become one in Christ through the bond we have in Jesus. There's now a bond of peace. So um, it's no uh, secret that we uh, are living amidst a culture that is easy come, easy go. Okay? It applies now to almost anything that we're involved in, right? The last thing we want to do is commit. And we say, I don't want to overcommit, but what we oftentimes mean is, I just don't want to be nailed down or committed to anything. And so we're an easy-come, easy-go society, whether we're talking about marriage, friendships, jobs, churches, right? We, we live in a world where we've got tons of options, and it just depends on what I'm hungry for today. Easy-come, easy-go. There are, I would even say this, um, and, and it's nobody in this room, I'm sure, but probably in the other service, um, Folks who left your last church too easily. We're so glad to have you, okay? And I don't know who you are, so I don't have any names in mind. I'm not thinking about you as the other service. But let's just be honest. Like, it's an easy come, easy go thing for us, isn't it? Even church, right? So one little small thing I stumped my toe on. I don't like the way he said this to her or what, what this person did or, or the way the chairs are arranged or the way we did the candles this week or I don't like the new color on the walls. And so just small little things and like what? I'm going to go somewhere else, right? There are probably even people here at this church who have come across something that they don't like who are in their minds right now contemplating leaving. Now, what I'm not talking about is being called by God. Totally different, right? God's calling you to this church, like we, we want to embrace you and we want you to come be a part because God wants to use you in an amazing way uh, to join the mission that's going on here. God may be calling you to go somewhere else. Let us know. You know what? We want to come alongside you and pray for you. I mean, we'll help, help you pack with tears, right? We want to be a part of what God is doing in your life as he calls you. That's different. But the easy come, easy go is anytime I, anytime I feel tension, I'm out. Whether it's a relationship Friendship, church membership, 
situation at work, I'm out. And what's being described here is that is this, that Jesus is our bond. That when I begin to draw back from you, I feel attention drawing me back. And it's not how awesome you are. It's not how much I like you or how much we have in common or the fact that our kids go to the same school or none of that matters. What draws me back to you, the tension I feel as I back away from you is the bond that we have in Jesus, and it pulls me back to you. It's the same thing in my, in my marriage, right? If I begin to push back away from my marriage, that same oneness is there pulling me back, reminding me that I'm not as cool as I think I am either. And so Paul reminds us that Jesus has died not just for our salvation, but for our nearness. We've been brought near through the blood of Christ. In Ephesians 2.18, just continuing on in that same chapter, he says something here that helps me too. He says, for through him, still talking about Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now think about that. How many... How many accesses are there to God? One. So in this room, as I enter into God's presence in worship, I engage in it. I, I'm cognitively aware of the presence of God in this room. And, and as you do the same, we're both stepping into the same presence of the same God. God doesn't divide himself across the room, right? Now, here's how I think about this. Um, it helps me as a father. So when my boys aren't getting along, um, we've tried a lot of strategies, um, including hanging them by their feet, um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, I, I want to, but I, but I haven't yet. Um, we put the big T-shirt on both of them, and, tried, and that just turned into an all-out brawl. Like, that didn't work at all. I saw your picture on Facebook, and I don't know how that worked for you, but it didn't work for us. But one thing that does work is if I'll call them to myself, if I'll, draw, if, I'll, if I'll bring them near, especially if I'm sitting down, and I get them sitting on my lap, and the first thing they want to do is convince me how they were right, and so-and-so did this first, and so-and-so. Here's what I do. I say, no, 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 eyes on me, eyes on me. And the way I draw them near to each other is I draw them near to me. You see, this is what's being described here is we have access. Paul is saying there's only one Holy Spirit that gives you access to the Father. There's only one Father. As I draw near and you draw near and we focus our eyes on him, look what happens. We draw near to one another. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's the result. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's, of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus in Christ being what? Our cornerstone. Why? He's our bond. He's the glue that holds us together. He's the tension we feel when we try to push back from one another. He's our cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Why does unity matter? Unity matters because Jesus died for it. Unity matters because Jesus died for it. You see, most often when we think about the death of Jesus, we only think about our own sins, don't we? Jesus died for my sins. He rose from the grave that I could have eternal life. That's true. But if we read Ephesians 2, that's only half the chapter. The second half of the chapter tells us that Jesus also died for our unity with one another. That he's provided this bond of peace and access to the Father through one spirit, also through his blood. And so if it's important enough to God to send his son to die, it matters, right? 
that Jesus would temporarily remove himself of glory, put on our skin, be born as a baby, walk among us in humility, right? In poverty, in suffering. Like he knows what it feels like to, to, for, for the, this desire to cry that wells up so bad that it hurts. He knows what that feels like. He knows what it feels like to be misunderstood and to be falsely accused and to be talked about behind his back. He knows what it feels like to be beaten to his face and to be spat upon and to be tortured and to die. He knows our suffering. Well, why did he go through all that? To provide forgiveness in a relationship with the Heavenly Father and what else? To bring unity to the body. And if it matters to God that much, it matters. Why does unity matter? Because Jesus died for it. Verse 2, as we continue along. Now what he's going to do is he's going to describe how we walk, how we live in a worthy manner of the calling, how we steward well, how we manage and maintain this unity. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in what? The bond of peace. Who's the bond of peace? Jesus, right? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit of the bond of peace. We're going to start with what it means to be eager to maintain right here. The word eager um, is probably more accurately defined in these terms, to do one's best or to work hard at it. It's what we mean when we say, give it all you've got. That's the word eager here. So whatever we're to do in living this life worthy of the man of the call, we're, we're to be giving everything we have in pursuit of it. To give all that we have to do one's best, to work hard at, eager to do what? To maintain. This is an awesome word. It means both to keep, which implies what we already have, but it also means to guard right, against those who would come after it. That's the word maintain here. So with everything that we have, with all that we are, with every strength, every fiber of our being, we would both keep the unity we have in Christ and we would also protect it against any enemy, right? In particular, the primary enemy, the devil himself who brings division, who tries to plant dissension among us, who spins lies out of the things that we say trying to convince us that this person doesn't like us or this person's talking about me. And all the while, the enemy is trying to divide this bond of peace we have. And Paul says, here's what you need to do. As is, is, is those who have been saved, you need to work with everything that you have to guard and protect the unity you have that Jesus died for. And then he describes what this should look like in humility and gentleness. These words are meant to go together can't really happen apart from one another. Now, this is interesting, okay? So we read the word humility, and we think, well, that's an endearing term, right? It's important to understand that what Paul is writing here is incredibly countercultural for the generation he lived in. Matter of fact, if you read Greek writings from the same time period, and this word is used, it's most often used to put somebody down, to describe somebody who is vulnerable and weak, somebody who lost a battle, and so this idea that Paul is drawing on isn't for this culture something endearing. But as Christ's followers, as we read the Bible, it's something that is always connected to the character of God. 
to be, to be humble, to humble yourself, to be vulnerable in the presence of God. Some examples. Psalm 51, this is uh, King David. If you don't know a lot about King David, King David was a man's man. Sure, he was really good at messing up. But when he was on top of his game, he was on top of his game. Like he was a, a leader. He was the kind of man that men would follow into battle and give their lives anywhere he led. God used David in a, in a dramatic way. But in a, in a moment of brokenness and weakness, in Psalm 51, he writes down his repentance, his prayer, just pours his heart out. This man's man becomes humble, becomes vulnerable. And look at verse 17, Psalm 51, 17, he says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It may not be admirable among my friends, among my peers. It may not cause people to follow me, but it is a good thing to be broken in the presence of the Lord. It is a strong thing to be vulnerable in the presence of the Lord. Over and over again, we see this in Jesus' teachings as well, going to the Beatitudes. Uh, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, a beautiful chapter on reconciliation when there's been offense. Matthew 18, verse 4, Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Very countercultural. Outside of Christianity, these weren't endearing terms. To be weak, to be vulnerable, to be gentle, to be humble. Uh, Matthew 23, 12, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So why is it an endearing thing to be humble for those who are in Christ? We think about the opposite of humility. We think about pride, right? What is pride? Pride is my attempt to convince you that I'm better than I actually am, right? Isn't that ultimately what pride is? Pride is me trying to convince you or trying to convince myself that I'm better than I actually am, right? Pride helps me feel better about myself. Pride helps, helps me think that you like me more. So humility is the opposite of that. So in order for me to like truly be humble, I've got to find my security in something other than my own performance, right? Other than the way I look at myself, I've got to find my security in something other than what I can accomplish or be. So for those who are in Christ, our security is anchored in what he has done for us and what he says about us. And what Jesus says about me is more powerful than what I might even say about myself. And so when I look in the mirror and I hear the voice of my flesh saying, Jason, you're inadequate. Jason, you're a failure. You know, Jason, if they know who you really are, they won't love you. There's a louder voice in my life, a more true voice in my life that says, Jason, you've been adopted. Jason, you are a saint in the kingdom of God. You're a priest. You're an heir to the throne of God. And that voice is louder. And so when my security's in that voice, right, the voice that's true, I can be humble. What do I have to risk? Right? I don't have to convince you or me of anything. I'm just convinced of what Jesus did for me. And so my security is rooted in what is true, not in what I can prove myself to be. Outside of Christ, that's a foreign idea, isn't it? It's no wonder that humility isn't an endearing uh, attribute for those outside of Christ, whether it's the first century Greek culture or the United States of America in 2015. Humility, right, true humility can only happen when we have true security, when we know who we are 
And better yet, when we know whose we are. We don't have to prove anything to anybody. And so Paul says, if you're going to work hard at maintaining this beautiful unity that the blood of Jesus has purchased for you, you're going to have to be humble and gentle with one another. Now think about that. Not only am I to be sweetly, contritely broken in the presence of God, God vulnerable and weak. This is where Paul says in, in Corinthians, in my weakness I was made strong. In the presence of the Lord, when I come humble and weak, and I'm made strong. But not only is that true, but I'm supposed to be humble and gentle in your presence. I'm supposed to be vulnerable with you. I'm supposed to walk in transparency and be honest with you and say, you know what? I'm not doing so well today. I'm struggling today. Now think about that. As I humble myself in gentleness with you, one, it allows you to know who I really am so that we can be unified. But two, as we do that, we remind each other of the gospel. We remind you that there's no safer place to be on earth but to be humble and vulnerable in the presence of God. And when you can be vulnerable in my presence, I'm just reminding you to be vulnerable in his. Right? And so what we play out here in our relationships reflects what we believe to be true. And then he throws in these other really, really big, powerful words that are hard to hear. Patience. Who likes to pray for patience? Um, it's so funny because like, we pray for patience and then something happens and we go, oh, quit praying for patience. Because I think we just have a false idea of what patience is. In our minds, patience is the absence of hard things. So when we say patience, what we're actually asking for is peace. When we pray for patience, what we're asking for is the strength to endure hard things. So why aren't we surprised that God answers that prayer by bringing hard things, right? We say, I pray for patience, and everything got hard. That's what you were asking for, right? You were asking for the strength to endure something hard. If you didn't want the hard thing, you should have been asking for peace, not patience. This word literally means endurance, constancy, steadfastness, perseverance, forbearance, long-suffering. To be patient means to endure hard things. I am to endure hard things with you. And then I love this last description. Slowness in avenging wrongs. That's also what it means to be patient. Now, when we think about avenging wrongs, we tend to think about the, you know, the mass murderers and the people who are terrorists and the people who really deserve vengeance. But what he's talking about is our practical, my practical relationship with you. I need to be slow to avenge wrongs. This is really good advice for parenting, by the way, right? To take a step back before you press in and discipline to make sure that your discipline isn't vengeance. Right, parents? Right? Even doing the right thing with the wrong heart attitude isn't, makes it wrong. And so often we're tempted, rather than to take a step back, take a deep breath, and be slow to vengeance and issue patient and gentle discipline, we'll lash right back at our kids, won't we? And so it's more of vengeance than it is discipline. We do the same thing in our marriages or important relationships, don't we? We're quick to avenge things that we think are wrong. Now, not only does that create division, but let's just be honest. We're not very accurate at determining what is actually wrong. I mean, how many times have we gotten upset about something that somebody did or said to find out later we misunderstood? Right? And so if we had been quick to avenge ourselves... We would, right, we've been operating on a lie and responding to something that wasn't true. I can't tell you how many times I've been offended by something somebody did to me 
And my heart reaction was vengeance. They need to know that what they did and what they said was wrong. It's outside of what God wants for them. And, and then I take a deep breath. I take a step back. And then, and then I read the rest of the email. And I go, oh, that's not what they were saying. Duh. See, I need to be slow to vengeance with you, to avenge the wrongs. Because you know what? Most oftentimes I'm miscalculating you and you're miscalculating me. This is why in Matthew 18, when Jesus talks about how we reconcile the wrongs, what are we to do? If you've been offended, go find that person, just the two of you, and you guys work it out. Explain yourself. Ask questions. Get to, the, get to what's actually true there. And then what's his hope? That you'd be reconciled. Matter of fact, that Matthew 18 ends with a beautiful promise we're going to read in just a minute, that when you and I are actually unified, we can know that we're in the presence of Jesus. That's the point. But if we're quick to avenge wrongs, right, guess what's going to happen? We're going to, we're going to trash each other. We're going to trample on one another's emotions. I'm going to respond to what I think you meant, and I'm going to say something that really hurts you, then you're going to respond to something that I really did. And, and next thing you know, I mean, how many times have you gotten to the end of a 45-minute um, robust dialogue with your significant other and then realize that the thing you were arguing about, like you both misunderstood it in the first 60 seconds of the conversation. Like, oh, I thought that's what, oh, I thought that's what you meant. Oh, can we just rewind that whole conversation and start over? Right, why? Because when we're quick to avenge ourselves, we're quick, we're quick to cast judgment and react rather than taking a step back and saying, wait a second, wait a second. The two have been made one, so I'm not going to allow the enemy to get involved in this. Let's take a step back. Let's take a deep breath. Let's ask each other what's going on here. So why? So we can be reconciled. So this bond of peace can draw us back together. And then he ends with this, bearing with one another in love. Um, One of the ways we understand this idea of bearing, it's lifting together. So that like, um, so like if if I have to lift something heavy uh, that I can't lift, if you'll get on the other side of it, we can lift it together. That's the practical understanding, but when we bring it into our relationship, it means to walk through hard things together. So, like, you're going through something really hard. Um, I can't come and take it away from you, right? I can't. I can't take your burdens and put them on me. I can't. But what I can do is I can walk with you and help carry the burden. How does that work? Well, I give you a safe place to vent without venging wrongs, right? I give you, I give you a, a, an atmosphere of grace to say this is what I'm feeling right now. I know it's not true, but this is how I feel. I feel like God has shut me off. I feel like God's not listening. And I give you this kind of environment of grace to say those things. And then gently I remind you of what is true. Well, we know, okay, I know you feel that way, but we both know that that's not true, right? Because that doesn't reflect God's character. He's loving and faithful. And, and so, right? And so I, I help bear that with you. I pray with you. I spend time with you. I hang out with you sometimes without even saying a thing. What are we doing? We're bearing with one another the heavy burdens of life. Now, it's interesting because he ends with that, bearing with one another in love. And when we go back to the teachings of Jesus, especially in John 15, look at what Jesus says about our love for one another. John 15, verse 12, he says, This is my commandment. Is it a big deal when the Son of God removes his glory, puts on flesh, is born in a manger, suffers among us, and he says something like, this is my commandment. It's a big deal, right? Not just a suggestion, not here's what will help life groups go better or help your, your, your kids' ministry just go off without a hitch. Like he's saying, no, Christ follower, come to me. This is my command for you. And look at what he says. This is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. 
you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So rather than being quick to avenge myself against you, I'm to lay my life down for you. And it's a command. So why does, why does unity matter? Because Jesus died for it and because Jesus commands it. And Paul's saying it this way, I need you to work at this with everything that you have. Be eager to maintain it because Jesus died for it and he commands it. Because Jesus commands that we be unified. Pick this back up in Ephesians 4 verse 4. Paul does now is he just he takes this fly over, this flyby, if you will, over the gospel from like 30,000 feet and just hits these really big points that are true about our faith. And so here's what he says in verse 4. Bringing all this to a crescendo, reminding us there is one body and one spirit. He's not just talking about the local church. If I am mad at you, angry with you, or hurt by you, and I leave this church and go to another church... We're, right? We're still a part of the church, the one body. There's still division there. Didn't fix anything. I don't have to see you as often, right? You don't have to see me, but it didn't fix the problem. Why? Because there's only one body. There's only one family that we're being adopted into here. There's one body and there's one spirit reminding us too, right, of our access. When I'm worshiping Jesus on this side of the room and I'm in the presence of the Holy Spirit and you're way over there in that corner in the presence of the Holy Spirit, we're in the presence of the same Holy Spirit. There's only one access to the presence of God. One body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. When Paul uses the word call, he's talking about the invitation to come to Christ. You've been called or invited. Just as you were called or invited to the one hope that belongs to your call. He's talking about ultimately our mission as a church to go into the darkest areas of this world, to be a light in the midst of darkness, and to call, to invite people into this abiding, life-transforming, grace-giving relationship we have with Jesus. One body, one spirit, one mission that we're on. We've all been invited. We need to go out now and invite. Look at what he says as he, as he mentions the gospel. Verse 5, one Lord. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who put on flesh, walked among us in humility, who suffered, who died on our behalf for our sins and for our unity, who was buried, who rose again and ascended back to the right hand of the Father. One Lord. That's the gospel. right? There's one Jesus, one Savior. Not only that, there's one Lord, there's one faith. What is he talking about here? There's only one way to get in right relationship with God. There's only one way to take what Jesus is offering. It's by faith. You bring your same prideful, arrogant, performance-based um, philosophies to Christianity, you're going to crash and burn and fail miserably. Why? There's only one way to get in God's favor, faith. There's only one access way, faith. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's part of the commission. We'll read it in just a second. That all who would believe that would come before a local body of believers and profess their faith, their faith publicly through what? Through baptism. Saying, this is what God has done in my life and is doing through my life. I'm now, I'm now one of you. I'm in. I'm a part of the family of God. I've been adopted into the family. And so baptism amplifies that. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And this is the mission we've been called to, to invite people to the one hope we have, out of darkness, into the light. One Lord, one, Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
Now, so it's so beautiful when we come together. Like this morning, we come together. We bring together our voices, our hearts, our gifts. Some of you bring financial gifts, talents, spiritual gifts. We bring it all together. One common gift. That's what fellowship means. We come together. It's a beautiful thing when we do that. We bring those things together to say, we have one God, and we're, we're on one mission, and we're doing that mission as one body. Um, just want to share my heart with you on, on this. Like, right now, um, things are happening, as I mentioned earlier, in and through our church that are the kinds of things that pastors dream about. You know, we, we think, gosh, I, I can't wait till the day when we finally get to this point. I can't wait till the day when, like, our people are serving, not because they feel guilty, but because they love Jesus. I can't wait till we get to the point where people are believing the gospel and we're not manipulating people or anything. They're just hearing the gospel and their hearts are responding by faith and they're becoming believers. And we just keep rolling the baptistry in and out and in and out. And every time we take communion, our hearts are overwhelmed with both joy and, and, and just, just tears of all that God is doing. And, like, all these things that pastors wish for and hope for and dream about and pray for, like, they're happening. Right, Brian? Right now. Among us, like, like we have over half of our people who attend here, not just members, over half of the people who attend here serve here on Sundays at some point. And many of you are serving every Sunday or every other Sunday. We have almost 150 people in our serving database, rotating in, taking care of babies and, and, and making sure that songs are ready to go and words are on the screen and chairs are straightened and trash is picked up and um, yesterday we had a, a work day, and like, I want you to hear this. Like, there isn't a, a member of staff or an elder among the elder body who takes your time lightly. Like, there's nothing in our minds that thinks that you are bored with too much time on your hands and you need things to do. So, like, anytime we put something out there, we're thinking about your time and whether or not this thing we're putting out there is worth your time. And when you give your time to it, we see that as a, a precious sacrifice on your behalf. So yesterday, we had a work day. Like, who wants to go to work day at church? Like, I don't like work days in my house. I, just, I mean, it has the word work in it. It's Saturday. And it's the first half of Saturday, not even the second half, which means i got to get out of bed and get going. And you want me to do what? You want me to sand a wooden desk down and stain it a different color? What? You want me to change the light bulbs for the kingdom of Jesus? Yeah. Can I tell you how blessed, like I just want you to know, I drove onto this campus today and before I even saw a person, my heart was overwhelmed with the joy of knowing what took place yesterday. We had over 20 volunteers show up, a large portion of whom were students. I don't know what Brian did to bribe you, but like high school students, you overwhelm us. Like I heard from several adults how amazing the high school students were showing up on a Saturday to serve the church. Um, I could go on and on. Like, we had a, our building and research team that's working on our future buildings down the road and met with an architect just recently, and the architect was walking around our campus and looking at how much space we don't have anymore. We're out of space everywhere. And he was saying, yeah, you're right. You guys are out of space. But he gave this response. He said, but I can tell your people care. This place, like, it, it, it can tell. Like, it looks like people around here care about the lawn and, and Alan and, and his family and all that they're doing right now to keep up with our lawn. Wes and the team who put together all the volunteers yesterday serving in so many ways. The, the Cato's coming. Like, have you noticed all the signs are new again? And, like, and they actually have the right website on it. And so we see those things and we think, well, that's not important. That's just, right, that's just keeping up with things. No, it does matter. 
And it's, it's directly related to the gospel and the ministry we've been called to. Now, let's don't just mow the grass and think that's going to save people. But when we truly care about the mission we're on, we take care of every detail. Why does it matter if the website's right on a sign? Well, because on our website, if you go there, one of the primary things you click on is the gospel. It matters. We don't want to send you to a website that doesn't exist anymore. And see, all these different ways... You as a family are making sacrifices and pitching in. You're giving your time, your tools, your talents, your tithes. Why? Because we're on the same mission together. Whether you're cutting grass, whether you're teaching kids in kids' ministry, you're playing a guitar on stage, or you're doing words up there, we're all on the mission together. We have one mission. Here's how Jesus says it in Matthew 18. He says this to the disciples. He came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You go then, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and then this beautiful promise, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want to fixate on that promise. So that's the mission we're on, right? That's the mission, but this beautiful promise, I am with you. And so Matthew 28 is ringing in one ear, but then Matthew 18 comes up again. Remember that chapter about reconciliation? One of the things that Jesus says in Matthew 18, verses 19 through 20 is this. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Wherever two or three gather in my name, what? There I am among them. I can't help but feel a remarkable connection between our unity and the mission that we're on. We have to come together in his name. We can't just be in the same room together. So one of the things that, that I believe is true, one of the reasons why God is doing an amazing work through this church is because of our unity. Because the truth of God's word is beginning to penetrate who we are. And in those moments where we, we get frustrated with each other and we begin to push back, we feel this incredible tension pulling us back together. And we were, we're reminded, what, of we have one God, one spirit, one faith, one mission, one bond of peace, and that, that peace is Jesus. The only way for me to not be bonded with you is for Jesus to be removed from the equation, and that ain't happening. Unity matters because the mission depends on it. Unity matters. Jesus died for it, big deal. Jesus commands it, another big deal. And the mission we're on depends on it. Another huge deal. Unity matters. Unity matters. I want to end here, and we're going to pick this back up next week. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at um, what it means together in worship. We're going to look at what it means the week after that to grow in community. And then the last week we're going to come back to is we're going to look at what it means to live on mission in our everyday lives. Okay, That's the next three weeks. Before we go any further, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for you. Um, if there's anybody here today who, um, as we're talking about these things today, realizes that you haven't responded to the invitation yet, that you're not a Christian, that maybe you came today to kind of check out what is church all about anyway, or who is this Jesus character, or what does the Bible have to say, and maybe you realize today, I kind of feel far off. I don't feel near to God. Well, I want you to know that there's this beautiful invitation that has gone out to you to come by faith and believe and taste and see that God is good. And when you come to Jesus in faith, here's why we say taste and see, you experience for yourself the goodness of a grace that has no strings attached. 
It's not like the grace you know in your other relationships where you have to barter or when you perform well, they give back to you. This is a a one-way street when it comes to grace. You believe, grace comes. And that invitation is open for you today. This is the immeasurable grace and the inexhaustible love of Jesus that we talk about. And so if that's you, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to ask you if you would consider doing something. Um, As soon as I get done praying, the worship team is going to come back up, and our prayer partners will be lined up here at the back, and they'll have lanyards on that say prayer partner. If that's you, and you know today I'm not a Christian, but I'd like to learn more about this call, or I'd like to respond to this invitation, I want to encourage you to go talk to one of our prayer partners today. There was nothing more that they would enjoy today than to talk with you about what it means to become a Christian and pray with you. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't even have to have all the right questions. I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to just encourage you, if you would, to get up and go talk with one of our prayer partners today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that that unity isn't something that we have to muster up. It's not an idea or a concept, but that it's part of the promise we've received in the gospel. That just as surely as you died on the cross for our sins, you died on the cross for our unity, tearing down all of our hostility towards one another. So God, today we acknowledge that unity does matter. It matters because you died for it. It matters because you commanded it. And God, it matters because the mission you've called us to depends on it. So today our hearts are, are open. God, we're seeing the church in a new light today. We're seeing that these relationships we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ has much more meaning than we originally thought. Today we have a better understanding of why every time we try to walk away, we keep, we keep being drawn back. Father, thank you for the work that you and you alone are doing in this church. I pray today as we, as we come together that our hearts would humble, our hearts would, would break in humility, and that we would understand the sweetness of just being broken and humble and vulnerable in your presence and in each other's presence. Holy Spirit, I pray right now you would tear down the walls of pride that would keep us in our seats or keep our, our voices to ourselves or would keep us from from responding to what we've heard today. Would you tear down those walls today? Give us the courage to respond in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name.